Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Boy toy named Troy, Escamilla, used to live in Detroit. Big, big, big money, he was getting some coins. Was in shoutouts with the law, but he lived in a palace. Bought me Alexander McQueen, yeah, he was keeping me stylish. My anaconda dope, my anaconda dope, my anaconda don't want none unless you got buns, huh? Yeah, did you know that the first verse of that song referenced a Troy? Is it that? Is it I, you? It is me. Me and Nikki go way back. <laughs> I know. I, you kept her stylish. And Alexander McQueen. My goodness. Oh, you know what? How, how, how else could you start an episode about this film? Um, I have another idea. Waiting for tonight. Whoa. Well, you will be here in my arms. Jennifer Lopez. Jennifer God. Lopez. Early, early role for Jennifer Lopez. Right before, like right on the cusp of her evolving from Jennifer Lopez into the J-Lo persona that that she kind of developed, um, becoming uh, a music vixen, a pop starlet, if you will. You know, she is, she's often made fun of as the, the pop artist with a weaker voice compared to the others, but I have no problem with Jennifer Lopez or her vocal abilities. And let me tell you, that Super Bowl... I mean, say what you fucking want about Jennifer Lopez, but when she when you want someone to bring it with the choreography and the performance elements, Jennifer Lopez is top of my list. Well, you know, she's been in the industry now for a, quite a while, and you know, there's no denying her her impact, her legacy, her success. You know, she was so close to getting an Oscar nomination a couple of years ago for uh, Hustlers. So, I mean, I think she does have a level of respect in the industry. Um, yeah, she's one of the weaker voiced pop. Artist, but I'm glad that I'm honestly, personally, I'm almost, I'm honestly glad she kind of um, steered away from that pop music scene to focus more on her acting career um, and her Spanish language albums because, you know, I think that's where she excels. Yeah, though I do think she makes a great dance track. I mean, I got to say. Oh, oh God, Waiting for which waiting for Tonight, which I found out was actually a cover song. I never knew that. I didn't know that either. It is a cover song, yes. Oh, my God. Coming I in with in- a J-Lo trivia. I was informed of that. I had no clue. I, I was forced to listen to the original. That almost makes me angry. It's good. It's good. <laughs> I can't think of the, the artist's name of it. But um, I enjoy a lot of Jennifer Lopez performances. I really do. I think she's actually a charming, charismatic actress. I really liked her in Selena. Um, I've liked her in the cell. She she's really given some some I think strong performances. And then although in this film we are discussing, which if you haven't guessed by Roger's musical intro, we are discussing the 1997 uh, what would you say action thriller horror flick creature feature creature if you will. feature yeah Anaconda, which I had not seen since it. I mean, I haven't seen this film probably since the 90s to be honest with you. So revisiting it was was a lot of fun it was a it's a film that i probably never would have watched again on my own so again i always have to thank you for letting me revisit some of these titles that just kind of 
gone under my radar and just kind of forgot about. But yeah, Jennifer Lopez, we got John Voigt, we got Ice Cube, we got Eric Stoltz, uh, we got Jonathan Hyde, we got Carrie Wurr. What a cast! A, a, a good cast, a strong cast. They're, well, okay, not a strong. <laughs> Acting about the, ele- the elephant in the room. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was. I'm gonna be honest with you. I was really shocked at how bad the acting in this film is, and I just didn't remember it being as cringy and just flat as it is. And maybe it's because 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when I saw this. Obviously, I wasn't really paying attention to that thing. I just wanted to be highly entertained. But Roger, the acting in this film from pretty much everyone is rough, is rough. John Voight is the standout. And I, you know, I know there was a little uproar. I don't know how you feel about this. I know there was a little uproar with the Razzie nominations because they nominated that little 11 year old gal from Firestarter for Best Actress. And a lot of people took to Twitter and social media to express outrage to the point where the Razzies rescinded her nomination and now they put in an age limit that they can only you have to be 18 to get a nomination I mean I don't know we could get into the politics of that I guess like I think the Razzies are a shitty organization to begin with so I, I always yeah. have I they, they are not about giving they are not about awarding the worst performance by any means they're about humiliating famous people like there have been so many performances that are good performances that get nominated just because of who gives the performance so they're always trying to you know up their uh status by nominating these big stars like Halle Berry and Sandra Bullock and hoping that they'll come to accept the award to give their award some sort of uh some sort of extra prestige but I think it's bullshit I hate the Razzies but my whole point is if there's ever a performance that I could say deserved a Razzie nomination, that actually got a Razzie nomination, it is John Voight in this film. I don't know what he was trying to do, but this whole cast, Roger, is flat. Uh, I think a lot of it falls kind of on um, the script. I think that a lot of the dialogue is is rather uninspired. Um, this definitely is a film. It's not a film that was written for the sake of the story. It was written for the sake of let's like have a giant snake and have it do all kinds of snake-like things involving eating people and so forth. And we'll kind of like loosely tie together a story around that. I, I will say I feel that Jennifer Lopez as Terry is the strongest player overall she gets some good action moments it may, when i watched this i thought god i really would love to see jennifer lopez in like a badass action film i'm sure she could run with it especially at this point in her career like give her something involving a lot of like big action moments i almost feel like this new movie she has coming out which is part of the reason i selected this title shotgun wedding <laughs> i think it's going to give me a little kiss of this action i want to see from her but i honestly would love to see her almost in like in like a um, like an atomic blonde kind of title because you know she can do physical. She's a fucking dancer. She dances with the best of them. Uh, and that body, it's kicking. She looks better now than she did when she made this film. And she was already stunningly beautiful to begin with. So I really think that there is an action superstar buried in there under all the glitz and the glamour and the makeup and God knows what, you know, uh, the, the souls of virgins or whatever it takes to keep that woman young. But um, yeah, I, I think she's capable in this film. I just think that there's a few things stacked against her um, that make for a somewhat forgettable experience in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's interesting that, you know, Jennifer Lopez, huge star, you know, she's the 
star of this film. And this was striking right when she was getting hot, as you said. And it's very interestingly, you watch this film and uh, it's almost like sometimes you can forget that she's even in it. And I'm not saying that's because she's so great in the role that she disappears into the character. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that the character is is so like one dimensional and really, you know, you get a story of why this character is on the ship, why she has the crew with her, but that's really all you get to know about this character. And then there's a little hint of a romance between her and the Eric Stoltz character, Kale. It's never uh, fleshed out. It's never elaborated on. And there's many times in the film where Jennifer Lopez go kind of is not even anywhere in the action. Yeah. And so it's really, again, it's, it's easy to forget that she's in the movie. But again, I think that you're correct. It falls back to the script. The characterization in this film is, is lousy. Yeah. Uh, I think it shows with the performances the actors give because they're not really given anything to, to really sink their teeth into or, or, or emote. John Voight uh, probably has the, you know, he has the juiciest character. His character is the villain of the film. And he's chomping on it. <laughs> he's chomping on it. John Voight is not a bad actor. And he's, a, he's an Oscar winning actor, you know, yeah. he, and he used to be so handsome back in his day. Yeah. And, but he is just, I, I don't, I, I maybe blame it on a director that just didn't give great direction in terms of what he wanted this character to be. It's so hammy and sometimes cringeworthy to even watch him on screen. Oh, and then you get, then you get the Westridge character who is also big. Yes. To the point of being, I mean, some of this line delivery is just, I was like, Oh, it's like, Oh dear. Like it's so British, but like, you know, at the end of the day though, Troy people, you know, people hate on this movie. For, for good reason, there are definitely glaring flaws. You're right, the performances aren't the best. I'd absolutely agree on that. But I also think, like, coming into this film, which is properly entitled Anaconda, um, I mean, what what else do you, do you or anyone else fucking expect from this movie? This movie, at the end of the day, say what you want about it, but this movie delivers on what it promises. And what it promises is a fucking, it's an Anaconda You've got you've got the Amazon River, you've got uh, you've got Owen Wilson <laughs> playing Owen Wilson, like <laughs> in the most Owen Wilson role ever. But no, I think that that for all of its flaws that do exist, I still think there is a hell of a popcorn film in here. And to say this movie isn't entertaining, even if absurdly so, I mean. I don't know. I, I think that this film does manage to deliver in one area, and it's the entertainment value. When this goes into some of those action sequences, even the CGI have an action, heavy action sequences, uh, and you know how we feel about CGI. I gotta say, for this being 1997, it's impressive what this film pulled off on that scale. Yes, I have the same note. I think the CGI in this film, actually, to be 100% honest with you, holds up pretty well is it the greatest no but compared to a lot of other films that were using cgi in the late 90s this is pretty good it still looks pretty right the anaconda action sequences look really good and you're right grab a bucket of popcorn and sit back and just be entertained because when the action does kick in which is probably the last 30 minutes of the movie uh it is a hoot it's it's a it's a it's a riot it's, this is pure popcorn fun unfortunately you know you have to sit through a lot of nonsense to get to the point that the film really picks up steam but yeah let's let's get into it but first we just want to give our our weekly we have to give our weekly patreon 
splurge because last night me and Roger had a blast <laughs> recording our latest full-length Patreon review, guys. And it is an obscure one, but it is Ooh. one that we've seen posted on social media quite a bit because of in response to Megan. You know, Megan is a ginormous box office hit. It's getting a sequel greenlit. Uh, around the same time Megan came out, this little indie film hit to be called Tiffany the Doll. And we saw a couple of our Facebook friends post the uh, the poster art for this movie, which is ridiculous. Check it out. Um, and we had made the joke, you know, hey, we should, you know, screw Megan. We should cover Tiffany the Doll. But it kind of calm, it kind of um, it, it happened. Yeah, I was gonna say it kind of <laughs> snowballed into, hey, let's really do this. So we um, we did our episode on Tiffany the Doll last night. It'll be on our Patreon here soon. So. If you've been chomping at the bits to to know what our Patreon's about, what's on there, this will be our 21st full-length review. And let me tell you, we had a blast talking about it. It's it's probably going to be one of our more entertaining episodes. Check it out. Also on our Patreon, I mean, one thing that I think is a really great perk that you get with our Patreon, it's little, but it's it's something I enjoy letting our, our fans know, is, is we do release all of our episode titles for the next month, everything to anticipate. Um, and this next month, it's like, we're getting weird this year, Troy. Like we are, we are picking some titles that I'm really fucking excited uh, to watch with you. I specifically picked a title because I know it's a title that makes Troy's skin crawl. So if you want to hear Troy, just watch something that he's absolutely miserable being exposed to. It's coming. It's coming next month. <laughs> it is coming. So- <laughs> it is coming. And we're doing a redux of one of our very early episodes. Are, so that'll be announced. So yeah, on the Patreon, we we do post ahead of time what our picks for the next month are going to be. So our patrons get to see them weeks ahead of time. You know, Try to get them weeks ahead of time. Usually it's like the end of the month, we'll post them on Patreon so people can the patrons can see what they are if you don't know what patreon is all it is is a platform for us to provide bonus exclusive material at the same time let our listeners if they so choose support the show uh because there are unfortunately costs involved with hosting and stuff so it helps us out it helps us out we have three levels tier levels that get you different things a two dollar tier five dollar tier ten dollar tier gets you everything so check it out patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast even if you only subscribe for this month to hear the tiffany the doll episode and then and then unsubscribe you'll still get access to everything once you subscribe you have access to everything so yeah that's our little spiel check it out it really helps us let's get into my anaconda don't want none unless you got buns hun and who has buns in the opening sequence of this film none other than danny trejo he does a younger Danny Trejo, younger than we're used to seeing him. Yeah, he is on a ship trying to, or on a barge trying to radio for help. There's no answer, and something starts rocking the boat, and he has all of these like animals in cages that start to freak out, and all of a sudden the floorboards explode up, and he takes off to the roof of this boat and climbs up the mast, and straight up shoots himself. <laughs> Yeah, in a very shocking manner, he um, pulls out a gun and shoots himself in the head. There's this one shot here where he's trying to nail up the door to keep the snake out, but then the snake ends up coming through the floorboards, and you've got like these nails like flying up in front of the camera in like slow motion, real dramatic. And I gotta say, this opening scene does give you like a fair idea of a lot of things to expect from this film. It's very over the top. It is brief on exposition, and 
it uh, features a POV shot that we get a lot scattered throughout the course of the movie. You get the perspective of the snake itself as you're moving and sliding and twisting around things. Um, it does come into play quite often. It, it does enhance a fair amount of these moments, I will say. Um, but this opening sequence is pretty brief, right to the point. Uh, not a lot happens, but you know for sure there's something fucking in the water. It's going to be an anaconda. Actually, before the scene, the actual film starts with the scrolling text. We ha- we can't ignore the scrolling text because the scrolling text tells you everything you need to know about the movie. It says, Tales of monstrous man-eating anacondas have been recounted for centuries by tribes people of the Amazon basin, some of whom are said to worship these giant snakes. Anacondas are among the most ferocious and enormous creatures on earth, growing in certain cases as long as 40 feet. Unique among snakes, they are not satisfied after eating a victim. They will regurgitate their prey, which they do several times in this film, in order to kill and eat it again. This is exaggerated nonsense. I know. Well, I know. First of all, <laughs> anacondas are not ferocious. No, they're not. No, they are very they are very peaceful animals. If they're left alone, you know, leave them alone. They're going to not bother or anything. So, yeah, a little bit of exaggeration here. Uh, they make the anaconda out to be a killing machine, and w- which, <laughs> which it is in this film. I mean, this anaconda will kill and eat anything. At one point, it eats a fucking uh, um, black panther. Like, it, <laughs> it kills a panther out of nowhere. No problem. So this snake in this film, you do need to go into it understanding that it is an absolute killing machine and that everybody is in great danger right off the bat. And you know it with this opening sequence. Yeah, you know it after Danny Trejo blows his head off because he's going to be attacked by whatever it is trying to get into this boat or cabin. Um, After this scene, we do go to this jungle hotel in the middle of the jungle in Brazil. And we are introduced to, I guess she's our, yeah, she's our protagonist. It's Terry, played by the lovely Jennifer Lopez. She's browsing pictures on her computer of different tribes people and then professor kale shows up which is played by eric stoltz who if we remember from mask oh we remember yeah and actually he was the original marty mcfly before getting fired after several weeks of filming but he is uh, you know it's cool to see him in this but what is he really has nothing to do in this film like literally he has like three lines and then is the rest of the movie he's he's in bed. Yeah, he's rendered useless pretty quickly. So what we establish is that they are that Terry's a filmmaker and um she is joining Professor Kale to make a documentary about this about lost tribes. They're specifically l- l- looking for a tribe called the Shirashama. So that is why they are embarking on this barge journey through the Amazon River. And we don't waste any time getting into action because then it goes to the next day and they're loading the boat with the crew. This is when we get introduced to the very uh, British, like you said, Westridge. Isn't he also in Jumanji? Yeah. Isn't he? It's, that it's, is that. Okay. That's what I thought. I'd even looked that up on IMDb. I was just like, that definitely has to be the same fucking guy. He's very British. I mean, we're channeling like a Tim Curry level of Britishness at times. Uh, when Tim Curry goes all full out British, he's like busting out lines like, it's wide in those suitcases. Be careful. And like, and like just being like very fucking British. It's so British. It is off putting at times because nobody else in this film is like a major stereotype of anything. If anything, I kind of appreciate the fact that the two characters that step up to be the focal leads 
are the two people of color. I mean, that is one standout aspect of this film. A 1997 film that has a black man and a Latina woman taking the lead of this film and kicking some ass and taking some names and doing a pretty solid job with it overall. Um, I appreciate that aspect of it. So I think it is weird that they chose to make the British characters so like, like (laughs) it's such a big, bold choice. I also do want to acknowledge that this whole sequence is set in Manaus, Brazil. This is my, um, my partner's home birth city, state, whatever territory region. I don't know how it's broken up down there but he can fill me in on it but yeah he was like oh that's where i'm from and i look at that i'm like oh my god you could have been eaten by an anaconda at any point in your life when you were a small baby anaconda's coming through windows (laughs) (laughs) taking babies away (laughs) oh my god climbing chimneys (laughs) but 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 no and this 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 westridge guy he's also just very diva-ish which got really old real quick has just i mean he he gets on board and he immediately tells denise to take his luggage upstairs and she's like uh dude i'm the production manager i'm not taking your luggage anywhere and he's constantly like barking orders at people and saying very sarcastic flamboyant shit i mean that's his whole shtick in this film and it really gets old it gets really really old i will agree but i also have to say one thing regarding the protagonist that i appreciate about this is Several of the characters start off with flaws or unlikable or, you know, maybe just not completely relatable. But there's a certain point where this like ragtag group of misfits start kind of working together. You know, majority of this towards the end of the movie where you see relationships like you've got Danny who's played by Ice Cube and his character is like really endearing and really likable kind of right off the bat. He's raising up Terry kind of, you know, supporting her through this project, really showing her a lot of support. But he has this kind of tension. There's a lot of antagonizing back and forth with him and with Warren Westridge. And you see this a lot for the opening chunk of the movie. And then when you get towards the end, they actually kind of start forming like a a working relationship together and kind of sharing a couple moments together. And I did like seeing that. I think these characters become progressively more likable as the film goes on. Um, I don't know. I personally don't think that I don't like this character at all. And I don't think he gets like any more likable by the end of the film. And actually I was glad when we don't have to deal with him anymore when the Anaconda takes care of him, because I just found this character very grating. Yeah. And I guess the Danny character, you know, I wouldn't say the Danny character is immediately likable any either, but I don't think it's, you know, ice cubes fault as an actor. Again, it's the script. We don't really know much about him except that he does tag along with Terry and yeah, as the film goes on, you you kind of see that they have a bond that they must have been working together for a while because he does lift her up. He does say very positive things to her and he's very protective of her by the end of the film. But yeah, for the most part, I just, I find the characters in this film, almost all of them to be just people I don't really care about. Even Carrie Wurrer? <laughs> Especially Carrie Wurrer. <laughs> Harry Warren doesn't do anything but cry eventually. So, and then there's this quick interaction that Westridge has with Terry where he's like, I've seen some of your short films and I guess they're promising. Very condescending towards her. But then they set off through the backwaters of the Amazon to search for the people, the tribe. They're people of the mist is their nickname, but they are the Sheer Shama tribe. And then there's this like really quick scene where Gary, played by Owen Wilson, is like to Denise, he's like, does the jungle make you really horny? You know what I never wanted to hear? 
spoken from Owen Wilson's lips is honestly anything about anything making him horny. Owen Wilson, I... I don't want to say I don't get the appeal. Like, there's a certain role that Owen Wilson plays. It's the only role he plays. It's a, it's someone who goes, wow, a lot. Like, that's that's his shtick. He's just, like, always just kind of like, I'm weird and awkward. I'm awkward with my delivery and my voice is really hard to listen to. Like, that's all he's got. I don't know. I think if anyone in this film I find kind of stiff and rigid, it's honestly him. He is one of the earlier ones to go, so I do appreciate that fact. Wasn't he in a romantic comedy or a, rom- a romance movie with Jennifer Lopez a few years ago? He Wasn't was it like Mar- Marry recently. Me or something? Was that it? Yeah, and it kind of did okay. Like people kind of liked it. I did not see it. That did not. I like her, but them reuniting after Anaconda isn't something I've necessarily been on the hunt for. Um, But okay, like, that's fine. I'd much rather see Shotgun Wedding uh, with Jennifer Coolidge. But no, so, I mean, yeah, I I guess I I feel that Owen Wilson is just someone who I am personally not a huge fan of, aside from the movie No Escape. I do like that film. Um, So I'm never really going to give him props or kudos. So my not liking him in this could just be a personal vendetta against Owen Wilson. I'll admit it right now. But what do you think about Owen Wilson in this film? He doesn't bother me. I mean, I think he's serviceable. He comes into the film, does what he needs to do, and is gone. So I, I wouldn't say that this, this character annoys me or that he's necessarily bad. I don't I'm very, to be honest with you, I'm very indifferent to Owen Wilson, honestly. So again, he I, I felt like not the not the weakest part of the film by any means. I would take the Owen Wilson character over the the Sarone character, the Kale character, the Westridge character, and even Carrie Wurr. <laughs> Poor Carrie Wurr. She has the, the the worst last name in the business. How do you say it? I don't even know. If, I don't even know if we're saying it right. Wurr. <laughs> it sounds like I have got like a like a like a bad tooth that I can't say something properly. <laughs> Warrer. Like, have my jaw is numb. Um, but you know what else I never want to do? Ever. And I'm just going to put this out there right now. I have zero interest in ever taking a boat ride down the Amazon. The heat... The humidity, everybody in this is looking moist and sticky. The bugs, and clearly the large predators that are simply living to kill and eat human beings. It's all These are all things I try to avoid on a regular basis. Uh, and it all seems to be there in the Amazon and more things I don't like. But you seem to be enchanted with it. <laughs> <laughs> I would do it. I mean... Just to say I've done it, of course, I don't want to be eaten by a giant anaconda, but, you know, I'm an adventurer. I, I like to get out and, and, and explore. So as long as, you know, the the, sh- the boat was properly equipped, I'd be fine. I'd be fine for a little while. I don't want to be out there for weeks, but float me up and down a few miles so I can get it some sightseeing done. And I'll have Gustavo take you on a trip. <laughs> okay, perfect. Maybe I'll come across a stranded John Voight. Oh, we can only pray. that is what... <laughs> That is what happens in this follow-up scene. They, they they get a major like wind and rainstorm comes through when they hear someone calling for help. And it is John Voight, Paul Sarone. A slack-jawed John Voight. Right off the bat, Troy, let's talk about some of the flaws in this performance. Because I think you could really break this performance down as one of the worst and probably most offensive portrayals of any kind of you know minority or nationality ever. Because honestly, like what... Is he supposed to be? He says that at one point, he says that he's from um, 
Paraguay. But I don't think that he has a, a Paraguayan accent per se. What do you, what is this supposed to be? I that's the question of the century. I have no clue, and that's why this performance is just mind-boggling to watch. I don't know what he I, again. I don't know what he was going for. You're right. Yeah, that he says he's from Paraguay, but he doesn't sound like <laughs> he sounds Creole, <laughs> like, yeah, like New Orleans Creole mixed with like I don't know some like uh, Spanish and a little bit of. Uh, Italian or something. There's like 10 different nationalities stirred up in this performance. And that's what he does with his face too. Like he, it's like, he's got like this, like kind of like gaping, like mouth, agape expression at all times. He's got like squinty eyes, gaping mouth. He looks like one of those fish from SpongeBob where their mouths are always in like a perpetual frown. Like he's always just standing there like mouth open. It's just so weird. His little choices he makes, like maybe he thought he was doing like a character study, but it just comes to be something unlike anything I've ever experienced in the world of cinema before. And not for a good thing. Yeah, especially in this type of film. It just sticks out, you know. It's very hard to ignore the awfulness that this performance is. Uh, but yeah, he jumps. They, they allow him to jump onto their boat. And um, they tell him, they're clear with him, hey, we can't take you back. He says that's fine, though, because he knows the people at the next village. And if he goes there, they'll be able to, to help him with his boat. The next morning, he... Spear catches a fish. This the shot of him just wrapped around this like log, spearing this fish. It's out of fucking nowhere. Well, then we're treated to about a five minute scene of him beating the fish, chopping it up as he's telling them like his his past. Like he said he, he was a priest, but he decided he needed to get out and see the real world, which brought him to the jungle. And of course, Westridge right away has to make some little pokes at him. He's like, "What's a failed priest doing in the jungle?" Fair. I didn't fail. Like, like his his accent is like it's very like like it's loose. It's, uh, I come from Paraguay. Like, like I, it just sounds like he's got cotton in his cheeks. <laughs> yeah. Well, then he says that his calling now is snakes, and that he catches them for collectors. Which instantly Terry's like, "Oh, you're a poacher." And he he has this thing where he dodges her questions. He never actually fully answers them. He just says like, um, uh, "Poaching's illegal." And then he kind of carries on with the conversation. But there's an instant suspicion. Like, this character is not at all subtle or discreet in any way, shape, or form. Sometimes characters are introduced and you're like, are they going to be the villain or aren't they? And this film, the moment he graces the screen, it is a very in-your-face portrayal of a like maniacal, plotting like dastardly evil character and you have no doubt about it whatsoever um they are not uh, discreet in, in the way they present this character to you the viewers oh you know yeah you know the second he jumps on that boat and opens his mouth that this guy's up to no good and they tell him that they're making a documentary about the people of the mist and he reveals to them that he's actually seen them and he knows where to take them so that they can actually find these this tribe so they're all about it you know especially terry she's like okay uh even though again there's a level of suspicion that uh is kind of underlying with the between these the people that are now on the boat uh that night kale professor kale and terry look at fireflies and it is romantic there's this little sweet moment where they kiss 
you know, and, and conversation about how the male fireflies and female fireflies flash differently to attract each other. And then they do, they do a little kiss. And this, this is, this is a sweet moment between them, but it, it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, it doesn't. I kind of though appreciate that at a certain point, this character, Steven is going to be kind of tossed aside, um, which does make for this whole kind of like romantic entanglement to become a very secondary thing. Um, because, I I don't know. I don't feel like that that would have really given me anything extra in this movie. Having like a romantic developing love interest. It's very much a side story. It's not too in your face. And once he is kind of rendered useless, I think it does allow at least Terry to kind of step up and be a little more present. Because right now she's just kind of smitten with him and she's operating underneath him. It's not until this whole thing happens that she has to kind of take charge of the situation yeah well yeah you're right i would not want to be subjected to several scenes of like oh sweet romance kiss in between these two characters and it, you know it's unnecessary but again um not a lot of build up or anything to any of these character interactions after this scene this is what you're talking about this we cut to this beautiful large black panther just out in the middle of the jungle just just minding its own business when i don't know where this fucking giant anaconda comes bailing through the jungle and wraps itself around this panther squeezes it so fucking hard that its eyes pops out one thing we got to say about this movie is it is kind of that perfect balance of digital effects and a good amount of practical effects and one of the strongest aspects of the film in my personal opinion is whenever you see the practical i'm guessing puppeteered or mechanical whatever the fuck it is effect that they use for the snake you know when it's real versus the digital effect whenever you see this fucking real effect it looks fucking great i mean it is ominous and terrifying if i saw this thing i would shit my fucking pants and you see this thing just swoop in and eat this goddamn fucking black panther like no big deal and this black panther also a real panther and then when they show the panther getting crushed they just use a series of practical effects and it's kind of like a montage of quick images of like the snake wrapping around the torso um a couple really kind of like expressionless shots of like the panther screaming like (laughs) but it's all obviously it's not digital and it's not like a hundred percent there but i give them fucking credit for trying to go practical when they can because i think that Oftentimes, the practical effects in this movie are stand out. Oh, no, I agree. I agree that the, the effects in the film, I think the digital and the practical effects in this film are pretty, pretty well done. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the, uh, the, the CGI effects hold up quite, quite well. And this whole sequence with this anaconda, the first glimpse we get at it. Yeah, it's very impressive. And you're right. It's creepy. The thing looks ominous. It looks evil. Uh, it's definitely a. It's definitely a a creature that I would not want to encounter. And they don't skimp on it either, is the thing. They show you a shit ton of it, and they go rather big with these effects, especially as you build up to the end of it. So I got to tip my hat to them. Back on the boat, there's a little spat between Westridge and Danny because Westridge tries to shut Danny's radio off. And Westridge, Westridge makes the comment, I could have you killed. I could, I could get a tribes person to kill you. And Danny's response is, well, I could kill you myself right now. <laughs> so as they're sailing, you know, they, they, they go past this snake totem. And Sarone explains to the group that the totem is the Shirashama and the legend, um, because it is a giant head of a anaconda, basically on a totem pole. 
Although as, as, uh, Sarona's trying to tell his story, and the legend Kale interrupts him and says it's actually not the uh, Shirashima, it's actually the Meiku. And they kind of have this, what do you want to say, like, these two, when they're together, it's, it's which is they're not together a lot because uh, Kale is taken out here real quick, but it's always like a, a dick competition like who has the big they're always like trying to one-up each other and trying to prove to each other oh i know more than you i know more than you and this is kind of the first example of that yeah i i feel that one of the main character traits that we see portrayed in paul right off the bat sharon you know paul they say his first name is paul a very threatening first name for sure um but is that he's you know he's got a pretty kind of quick temper he's got an attitude and he's really like uh insistent on being right and his opinion being the one that people like listen to and and as soon as he gets people to kind of like take his side he kind of runs with it he's clearly trying to turn people against each other um and it's not again it's not subtle whatsoever so like you as the viewer are just coming to not like him automatically which is a good thing i mean you should not like this character Meanwhile, you've got Stephen, who is like the professor who's kind of, you know, overseeing this expedition and overseeing this project being filmed. And he is just kind of like a know-it-all. He's a little bit of a bitch. I'm not going to lie. Like, he's kind of unlikable. But he automatically is quick to shoot down Paul and his, like, suggestions. And you do come to find out there there is a reason that Paul wants things to go a certain way. Like he has a specific intention being on this boat. This is all intentionally planned. Like we're just going to put it out there right now. And the moment that anybody questions him, he becomes upset about it and he kind of loses his cool. And um, it's the first hint of what's to come, I would say. Well, there's this moment where uh, Terry tells Westridge that she wants a shot of him in front of the totem. So they're doing the shot and Sedone steps right in front of it and is like, I know what I know. You don't have to believe me. You can just drop me off at the next village. Just being a little bitch. Uh, that night, Gary and Denise get off the boat to go capture some nature sounds. And they're in the middle of the jungle and they start to make out. When all of a sudden, uh, Denise realizes that it's silent. She's like, wait a minute. Hear that? It's silent. And out of fucking nowhere comes this wild boar charging at him. This jungle is full of everything. Panthers, boars, anacondas. And it's coming barreling right at him. And just in time, Sedone shows up and shoots it. So he hauls it back to the boat, throws it on board. And everyone's like, oh, what the hell? And Sedone's like, it's a wild boar. It would would do some damage. It would kill you because it goes right for the eyes. And then he's like, Hey, you want to come help me cut it up for food? <laughs> I mean, I would be like, absolutely. I'm sure it's delicious. And I feel like you, sir, after seeing you prepare that fish, fillet that fish, I mean, I would eat that fish as well. I would be on this boat just to have this man cook for me. And as long as he cooked for me, I would do whatever the fuck he wanted. He has a lot of skills. Let's just put it that way. Unfortunately, uh, the rope of the boat gets caught on the propeller. So they need to go down to the propeller and cut it loose. So Kale decides that he's the one that's going to do it. So he gears up, even though Sedone offers to do it because he's like, you know, that river can be deaf. Kale says, no, you know what? The only thing I'm scared of is this tiny catfish that can swim up your urethra. And I'm thinking that sounds fucking painful. The Kendiru Aku, uh, Aku or whatever they call it. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, and then it like just, 
it just houses itself in your penis. And I'm like, nope, that's not going to happen. So this is a real thing, but it is exaggerated. It doesn't have happen as often as they say it does in the movie, but it is a real thing. There have been a few accounts of this happening. And one of the only ways to remove it, if it's too bad is by uh, castration. I just want you to know that. So like this thing like gets lodged in your dick hole and, it could stay there forever. So that is a horrifying concept, scarier than a lot of the things in this movie. And it will haunt my nightmares for the next several weeks because I read up about it. And I was like, is this real? <laughs> well, thank you for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he jumps into the river and goes, swims down to the propeller. There's this moment where like Terry is just kind of casually pulling her hair back into a ponytail. And Sedona is sitting there just staring oh, like my. gape, mouth agape, <laughs> creepily at him. John Voight just sitting there like uh, uh, with his eyes closed. He's like, he does this other thing where he just like, he doesn't even really open his eyes that much. He's just squinting, squinting at all times. Like the sun is just beating down on him. Well, I wonder if he thought that was ominous. You know, he's like, oh, if I squint up, it's going to be ominous. It's beyond ominous with this portrayal though. It's to the point where it looks like his eyes are just closed for a majority of the movie. (laughs) In the uh, uh, under this water, Kale is uh, successfully kind of trying to get the rope untangled. When all of a sudden something happens, he starts like convulsing, and Terry notices it. So they jump in and pull him out of the water, and he's not breathing. But they see that there's something. They see there's something embedded in his mouth, so they pull it open, and it's a poisonous wasp. Ugh. How did that get in his mouth underwater? I was wondering. Or is it? Is it? He just. It was just in the water and he swallowed it or no. So what I think is what happened is, is that, um, Sarone placed it in his air tank. Cause you know, how he goes down, he puts the air mask on. So it was in the air tank. So then when he, obviously when he started to breathe in, it eventually came into his throat and stung him. Oh, what? Oh my, it's so big. It's like, he opens his mouth and Mateo, who, by the way, if, if we have not even mentioned this name yet there is also like a captain of the boat named mateo he is there as well um and he like opens his mouth and he pulls the wasp out he's like wasp deadly (laughs) and everyone's panicking and there is this moment here where you have paul take out a blade and like cut cut into the trachea like inserting a straw so he can breathe and it's actually pretty like cringy like it makes your butthole clench when you see it this yeah when he sticks the knife into this dude's neck i i clenched i'm like oh yeah no but it does cause him to start breathing again but this also causes basically this professor kale character to be bedridden the rest of the movie literally the rest of the movie one thing i want to touch on we haven't really brought it up much at all but for a majority of the film a vast majority, I will say. The sound work in this is rather phenomenal. I mean, you hear the swelling, sweeping sounds of of the rainforest. And there's even a couple of moments like earlier where you had uh, Denise and Gary out in the woods with their headset recording audio. And you kind of heard it all really elevated and, and enhanced. And it's kind of just all around you at all times. It's very all-consuming, which it should be. I mean... This the location, the setting that they're in is one of the best parts of the film. I mean, visually, this is a, a stunning film just by location alone. Like everything going on here is just really, really um, impressive looking, and it feels so like distant and very, very obviously South American. Like it feels like nothing we would ever experience here, and so the location and especially the sound um, are are really 
well handled. Uh, there's one sound effect that'll be coming up that I'll, I'll touch on soon that uh, I would say my praises do not apply to. <laughs> it's a very bold sound decision that they make here uh, involving the snake. But other than that, I'm really quite enchanted by the sound work in this film. I think it's rather great. Well, after this little incident with Kale, T- Terry decides she wants to head back because they need to get Kale to the hospital. And this is when Saroni's like, uh, no, you know, we need to keep going this route because it'll be quicker. He's like, if we go back your way, it's going to add two days. So I assure you, if we stay on this route, I know, I know it's going to be quicker. And she's a little hesitant, but they agree to do it. And as they continue down the river, going the route that uh, Saron wanted them to go, they run into this giant wooden wall that's blocking the river. This moment when they come up to this, he's eating, he's suckling on this grapefruit. And honestly, the probably one of the most terrifying things in this movie is the way that God, fucking John Voight suckles on this goddamn grapefruit. It's disgusting. He's just like, <laughs> just gnawing on it. It's, it's very gross. Terry's like, you, this is the right, the way you wanted to come. Did you know this was here? And he's like, nope, this is new. He's just very like nonchalant about it. Uh, but he's like, but Terry says, well, what are we going to do? And he's like, I can blow it up in 10 minutes. And he pulls out some dynamite. Everyone is thrown off by this. Yeah. And they're like, why do you have dynamite? He's like, you never know when you're going to need it. And she's like, no, absolutely not. This will disturb the, the life of the, the river. Um, and he's like, okay, well it's either we get through in 10 minutes or, or we lose two days. And this is when Westridge chimes in. He's like, oh, for Pete's sake, just let him blow it up. Paul at this point with his dialogue, he really starts talking down. I mean, pretty much to everybody, but he especially talks down to Terry. And in this moment specifically, he, he comments on her being too emotional. He comments on her panicking and she's not even panicking. She's just trying to kind of keep a cool head and keep things under control. Um, But he's really starting to show his true colors. Um, And I do kind of like that once he gets to a certain point where things are kind of in his control, he just pretty much says fuck it to everything. And he just kind of starts treating everybody really shitty. Uh, He has this like nickname also for Denise where he goes, Little baby bird. <laughs> and again, it seems very like demeaning. Um, but for as bad as his performance is, he is never not like despicable. All of his choices are very like unlikable. It's to an it's to an extreme, often a comedic extreme, but he does so many things. That make me as the viewer to be like, oh, I fucking hate him. I hate the way he treats these people. I hate the way he talks to them and the really shitty choices he makes with absolutely no consideration of any of the people around him. Um, I do at least really want to see this character get like his just desserts. So in a way, even though it's a even though it's an absurdly bad performance it still accomplishes what john voight set out to do which is create a really like unlikable villain he still manages to succeed yeah no i'll I'll give you that i will give you that for all of the odd choices in the performance you still very much dislike this man he's he's despicable he is definitely despicable so john voight did bring that trait to this character in spades and more (laughs) yes so, uh, so Gary and Sir, Gary and Paul Sarone hop in the water and they go to plant the dynamite at this wall. 
And of course it does blow up. Oh, it blows up. All right. And what it blows up is a tons of baby snakes <laughs> fall from a tree that, that was on the, this like damn thing falls onto the boat and all these baby snakes fall into the, onto the, uh, onto the boat and everyone's freaking out, kicking at them, trying to get them back in the water. Except Sarone is like calling them little babies. He's like, Oh, little baby. Come here, little baby. Babies. All babies. of them babies. He's, and then you've got this whole moment where Warren like looks over and <laughs> oh there's my this God, snake. This is that's so ridiculous. Well, there's first, there's this moment of this snake just with a frog in its mouth, just like the frogs just looking at him. I love that little moment. But then he gets this tiny little snake on his finger and the snake starts just like eating his finger. And of course, Paul walks up to him and he's like, so young and yes, so lethal. <laughs> and he like rips it off his finger and it's all like bloody, but it's like this very obvious puppet. But still, like, I appreciate me a practical effect, so I'm not going to shit on it. But this rain and snake sequence, <laughs> it's so over the top. The volume of snakes that must have been lodged behind that dam, millions of them. It's irrational. Oh, there's so many. There's so many. And yeah, uh, Westridge's reaction to having a snake on his finger, too. He's like, somebody get the snake off my finger. We have to also mention that when this explosion happens, it blows the fuel tanks into the water, leaving them only with one fuel tank left. Dun, dun, dun. Raising the stakes. Okay, there is a moment after this where Terry does express concern to Danny over where Sarone is taking them. She wants to know, you know, are we really going in the direction that's going to get us to the doctor the quickest? And as they're discussing this, they run into this abandoned boat, which are it's like an abandoned barge, like a like an abandoned houseboat or something that I'm assuming is the one from the beginning, right? Yeah, that's why I assumed as well. Yeah, so uh, the guys get out, the three guys get out and get into the water and go to it. Uh, Danny's filming. They go onto the boat and explore. Uh, Sarone bashes open this chest and he finds, what is it, an Uzi? Yeah, he definitely finds like an array of weapons. It's, it it's an, yeah, I thought, I was like, is that an Uzi? So they haul it back onto the boat. And Mateo is with them. We, again, Mateo is a character. We haven't really mentioned it because... He doesn't fucking do anything. He doesn't do anything. He drives the boat. <laughs> he drives the boat and he helps them haul stuff back from this abandoned boat they find but on the way back he's 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 straggling behind and all of a sudden this fucking snake pops out of the water and kills this Mateo wraps itself around him and squeezes the shit out of him until his bones break pulls him underwater no nobody notices this happening they do notice that he's not with them when they get back to the boat but Nobody nobody actually realizes that this dude was just eaten by a 50-foot snake. I think there'd be a lot more audio happening. Even if they're a distance away, you'd be hearing splashing. You'd be Wouldn't hearing be like screaming well, and... death noises. I mean, they do make it seem like it's so sudden that the guy doesn't have a chance to scream because he's getting squeezed so tight. And you have this whole like fun little moment where he like falls backwards into the water. He stands up, he turns around, and bam. Um, I will say I feel like his being grabbed... It's unfortunate that the first attack that we see is probably the worst digital effect in the film um, because his being grabbed is just there's a kind of an awkwardness to it that it doesn't completely feel natural. I mean, there's like a rigidness to it. The motion of the CGI just kind of feels a pinch off, but still, for the most part, it's still a really solid effect altogether. Um, and it's really enhanced by the, again, the practical effects that you see 
interspliced between the digital ones because they do use a fair amount of practical shots. You see the snake like looking down as it at him as it breaks his neck and then opens its mouth and it's like ah! like you see a good amount of these really well handled practical moments with the snake. And so it does make the bad CGI um, in this specific particular moment more palatable. But I I do want to point out also with this that in the boat, uh, Paul did find a newspaper clipping that was hung up, obviously, by the Danny Trejo character in the boat, uh, where there's also an image of Mateo alongside him, and they're holding up like a prize snake, the three of them in the photo. So that was a nice, well-placed little prop piece that makes it clear, okay, all three of these people knew each other. Obviously, they worked together at one point. It's a great hint to allude to the fact that this was all planned and Mateo was, in fact, in on it. Um, So seeing him die at that time feels very well placed. Just as you get that piece of information about him, he's dispatched. Well, once they get back to the boat and realize uh, Mateo's gone, Danny does get back into the water to go look for him, but he can't find him. And all out of nowhere, Cerrone throws this giant snake skin at them and tells them something like that ate your captain. <laughs> this a snake skin comes out Where'd he out get it? And he's Where'd so he get quick. it? He's so quick to present. Was it in that box? I don't know. He just throws this giant snake I mean, skin like, he just smugly, smugly, he rolls it out like a fucking red carpet. And they're all like, what is that? And he's like, snakes. And he instantly kind of goes into like a little monologue speech. He pronounces Mateo to be dead. And he explains that he was consumed by uh, an anaconda in lavish detail. He states that the anaconda will uh, wrap you tighter than your true love. And you get the privilege of hearing your birds break. As the power of the embrace causes your veins to explode. He mutters to all of them and they look on in horror. Yeah, it's funny because Terry's like, snakes don't eat people. And then he launches and he points. He has like a scar on his face and he points to it. And yeah, he he tells this story about how he was attacked by an anaconda and they will crush you alive. And they feel you. They sense your warmth. And then he proceeds to... Tell Gary, because I feel like he knows that Gary's the the one that's probably going to go along with everything that, that he wants to do the, the easiest because he's kind of formed this connection with Gary, like him and Gary were the ones that went to put the dynamite out. He tells Gary, you know, catching those snakes alive, that'd be worth a lot of money. Isn't that right, Gary? <laughs> maybe a million, maybe a million dollars. How's that sound, Gary? So he's like planting this idea in Gary's head, and you can kind of see Gary's definitely taking the bait. Then Westridge just freaks out about wanting to leave. He's like, oh, I want to get the hell out of here. Terry's demanding that they stay in and wait for Mateo, and and Westridge has this moment where he's like, what do you think? He went for a walk in the woods? We have to get the hell out of here! Like, he's, he's so over the top. But I... I do think that when the the fear of the snake is placed in the characters is when it starts to become its most fun. Because people obviously know now that there is danger just outside this boat. You know, they're in danger any time they could be eaten. Well, they don't know necessarily what it is because nobody saw what happened to uh, Mateo. When they're just listening to... Sarone tell them that it was an anaconda. We don't they don't necessarily know that to be true yet, but they certainly soon find out. Oh yes. That night, again, Sarone gets Gary alone and tells him he's like, Danger is exciting, isn't it, Gary? 
Uh, and then he proceeds to have a conversation with Gary about how he needs a partner to catch the anaconda and how it can make him a rich man. I think here's my issue with with Owen Wilson's Gary. You know, I'm going to come back. I'm going to circle back around. I'm going to take some of the blame off Owen Wilson's shoulders and his large nose. Um, I think my issue here is that the character of Gary, overall, everyone here is written to be rather thin and underdeveloped. But Gary really doesn't have a like driving purpose in the film whatsoever until he becomes the one to turn. And it seems so quick. It's like the moment that it's presented that there's like money at stake, Gary is quick to like toss aside what appears to be his girlfriend and Denise. Like there's, if they're not lovers, like casual lovers, then they're in an actual relationship. But I mean, it seems like they've got some kind of fucking strange chemistry. I don't know why Carrie Werber were opting for Owen Wilson, but okay. But so he's very quick to turn on them and like, not just turn on them, but allow like Paul to eventually like pull a gun on them and like support him in doing so. It seems very abrupt. It is very abrupt. But again, I I personally can I sort of buy it just because we don't know nothing about this character because they're, he's so they're so underwritten. So all of these characters are underwritten. So nothing would surprise me because there's no character traits that are developed so far i don't know sh- two shits about gary yeah he's done nothing in this film so it doesn't really affect me when he ag- immediately agrees to to do this do i find it an odd choice for the script to go absolutely but like i'm not like surprised by it it's not like it's not like gary has been portrayed as being like oh i'm so loyal to to, to terry and i'm so loyal he's done he's done nothing in this entire film so this action really doesn't surprise me it just makes me dislike the character because he does go so easily along with um Sarone that it's just it's you just like what what but i guess that's the the lure of a million dollars you hang a million dollars in front of my face who knows you know i don't know but again money makes people do crazy things we see that with your next that we reviewed a couple episodes ago see how i'm tying everything together look at you uh, look at me terry wakes up and Sarone is watching her and she catches him watching her, and all he says is, no Mateo. <laughs> Still no Mateo. The boat is sailing, and Tyrone goes out to the boat deck, and these cute monkeys. Oh, my God. The monkeys. The monkeys. And what does he do? He shoots, oh. he shoots one. He kills two monkeys over the course of this film, too. Let's be clear. There's another monkey death coming later. And honestly, that... If anything in this movie pissed me off, it's the fact this fucker's just shooting these cute little fucking monkeys, <laughs> throwing them to the snakes to use them as bait. Oh my god, horrible, despicable! They pull it into the water. He pulls it uh, out of the water, and he's like, "It's going to be bait for the snakes." And Terry objects. She's like, "No, we are not doing this." And so Rome is like, "Everyone agree with her, Gary." She speaks for everybody. Gary. Oh, Gary. She speaks for everybody. Like, again, the accent. I don't know where it's fucking coming from. He looks like an average, everyday Caucasian man, to be honest, with a bad ponytail. There's nothing exotic about him, but this accent, it's a its a fucking brew of 30 different countries. I mean, it's John Voight, the whitest white actor ever to exist. Come on. He it's did. very uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, he, he did father, he did father Angelina Jolie, so we got to give him that. But, um, you know, Gary says they can salvage the trip by filming Sarone catch one of the anacondas. Oh my God. This is him at his douchiest. He's like trying to pitch it 
Gary's trying to pitch to the group why it is acceptable to mutiny against them. He says, he's like, why let this opportunity go to waste? We can actually make some money off of this. If if we if we can film him and help him, he will get us out of here alive. That, my amigos, is not insanity. That is common freaking sense. <laughs> yeah. Danny says he's going to throw both of them in the river. And he, like, goes to charge them. And this is when Cerrone pulls out a gun and shoots it at him. And this is the moment that you realize, okay, this guy is definitely up to no fucking good. No. And the, guns have, the, dun- the guns have come out. It's getting hostile now it's a hostile takeover and then we cut to this night scene where gary now has a gun and he's like patrolling the 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 ship as sarone fishes for an anaconda with the monkey you know and gary keeps looking over ominously at the guy at the other at the group as they're like watching and questioning what's going on he's proudly displaying the fact that he has a gun when all of a sudden what the fuck happens Sarone catches a fucking anaconda. Oh my God. Listen, for all of my criticisms up to this point, when moments like this hit, this is when I say this movie deserves its fucking flowers. Because as absurd as an anaconda spitting a monkey's corpse in a British man's face may be, this scene is fucking great. I mean, the camera's whipping all over the fucking place. Lights are going off. The snake comes out of the water. It's screaming like a woman. <laughs> it's screaming. The snake, here's the audio I have a problem with. The scream of the snake is very human-like, and it sounds like a woman. Like, ah! like it's very womanly, the snake's death screams. Uh, and so you've got the snake flipping out thrashing about in the water shit is just going awry people are getting knocked over with its tail like carrie Wurr is screaming her fucking head off with that with that bob and it's just a lot to take in but i think that this scene culminates really well like it builds into this really intense sequence and there are multiple more sequences to come that i would say are on par with this energy Everyone's getting knocked into the water. Danny goes to stab Sarone, but gets knocked down by the snake tail. Sarone's knocked down. The snake comes out of the water and, like you said, spits the monkey at Westridge's face. That's hilarious. Terry fucking runs her ass into the inside the little glass shack of the the boat, and the fucking anaconda comes busting through the window. So the anaconda possesses an almost sentient, uncanny ability to like think and and makes distinct choices. Um, it's far smarter than any snake. I don't care how big the snake may be. Any snake should be. Uh, but it does make it more threatening in the long run. I'll give it that. And this whole moment of her being in that little room with it busting through the glass and staring at her, sticking its tongue out. Again, it looks fucking terrifying. It does. Jennifer Lopez is stuck in this with this fucking snakes licking at her. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. Sarone so, uh, actually comes in to, to, to save her and shoots it in the mouth of the tranquilizer. And as she's out, out on the, out on the deck, as she's running, Denise falls into the water and Gary has to jump in to save her. And, you know, he gets her out of the water and as she gets out, he's trying to get himself out. And all of a sudden the snake that's supposed to be tranquilized comes up and grabs Gary and wraps it around him and fucking constricts him to death. <laughs> this scene, man, I mean, the CGI in the last kill sequence like i said was a little iffy the cgi in this sequence and maybe it's because this is at night maybe it was just easier for them to color grade it i don't know i think these effects are 
fucking great. I mean, the digital effects as he gets wrapped around that fucking like part of the boat, like it's, you know, the snakes like wrapping around him and then it breaks off and falls into the water. And you see it like, yeah, you see it like crush, like you see his body like compress as it's crushing tighter. It is honestly a very intense scene. Carrie Word screaming her fucking head off. I mean, her acting in the rest of this movie may be subpar, but these screams are fucking great. Uh, and, and it's just a really well executed death scene. Yeah, no, this looks great. It looks fucking painful as fuck. And I will tell you, one of my top three like worst deaths that I would never want to have experienced is, is having like a giant snake kill me and constrict me. You know, you've seen I've seen like, you know, things on the internet about people like in India being killed by giant boa constrictors and that you see the like like the bodies. And, oh, I just think that would be awful. So this is cringeworthy. Uh, and yeah, Carrie Ward just screaming her head off. Jennifer Lopez, Terry goes to shoot the snake and actually Sarone knocks the gun out of her hand. He's like, it's no good to me, dad. Oh my God. I get so pissed off at him at this point. Like this is when you know he's out for the snake. He doesn't give two shits about anybody else. No. So there's this, you know, Gary's dead now. We don't have to put up with Owen Wilson or you don't have to put up with Owen Wilson anymore. <laughs> he's, wow. he's dead. Wow, man. Uh, Denise is like crying and just in a fit of, hysterics and uh, terry's trying to comfort her so 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 road walks up and like says this prayer right next to her and like throws this like flower into the river and she yells at him it says your fucking fault you brought that devil here (laughs) i love it oh he's like there's a little devil in everybody but like she's her dialogue here where she's like you brought that snake to us you brought that snake the devil it's some of her flattest acting in the movie yeah, there's devil in all of us. Then he tells Westridge to take his gear up to the pilot house. And Westridge is like, who am I? I'm, who do you think I am? Will you presume me to be your bellboy or whatever? And Westridge, he goes over to Westridge and slaps him and pulls a gun on him. He's like, I could k- kill you and throw you in the river if you don't want to. This double, like, or it's like a triple slap. He, like, smacks him up, holding the gun at him. I do like, here's, here's some of the moments. I'll give you examples. Moments where I'm starting to come to, like, uh, Westridge a little bit. I like that he just fucking stands up to him. He's like, I won't be your little poodle. <laughs> that he gets, <laughs> but he gets smacked up and like beat down to the ground and everything. So I like that everyone's trying to stand up to this guy, but he's such a fucker that he's literally just taken over their boat. He can go fuck himself. Oh, he is definitely taken over. This is mutiny, you know, and he, you're, he has a, he has a very distinct plan up his sleeve. So, and it's going so far, it's, it's pretty much going as he has, has a plan. One shot I really want to acknowledge real fast before we get too far from it. As all this is going on, you do get this underwater shot. Oh yeah. The snake swimming. Of the digital (laughs) snake. Again, not a bad effect. I'm going to say it, but you see the snake swim by and as it passes the camera, you see the, uh, like indent of Owen Wilson's face, like inside of him, like poking, like through the skin of the stomach. It's comedic it's so unnecessary but i'm so fucking happy it's in this movie i mean it just it fits everything else like give it to me give me people being digested (laughs) it looks cool yeah i I just got a chuckle out of it well that night terry puts on some makeup that that earth colored lipstick (laughs) yeah it it doesn't do anything for her she looks exactly the same but she's she's gonna go in to seduce sarone and she's like i think i think we can help each other I want to film you. And then she even like goes as far as to like kiss him, kiss him passionately. Oh my God. He's so fucking disgusting. He's like, he is. you need protection. 
been a long time since I had a woman. And then, yeah, and then they have this passionate kiss. And then, of course, like, tell you what, you think she's really going to be seducing this fucking horrible looking man? No, it's part of a plan. <laughs> He's well aware of it. He pulls out his gun just as Danny comes in trying to beat him over the head. He's like, you think I'm stupid? I ain't stupid. And then, I'm going to give him credit again. Westridge comes from behind him with his golf club and beats him in the back of the head. And he fucking, like, there is like a pulpy wound in the back of his head. He really fucking swings at him. Yeah, they, they're they like, let's tie him up. So they tie him to the to the deck. Hole in one, asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's too bad that they didn't, you know, flesh out that character a little bit more. Because I could see what you're saying. He could have been a really fun character. Uh, just underutilized. There's not much for him to do, but he does have a few good sh- scenes, and I will give you that. This is one of them when he bashes uh, Sarone in the head with the with the golf club. He's tied up. Terry confronts him about it all being set up because she now has seen the newspaper clipping, so she knows this was all a setup. Uh, she says everything, you know, going down this route, everything has been a setup. And he's like, you can't forget about the wasps. And then she fucking right hooks him to the jaw. Oh, hard. good, deserved. How could you forget about the wasps? I can't do oh. the voice. You're so good at voices, Roger. Oh my God. Uh, you. <laughs> How could you forget about the wasps? Because it's like it's like Creole. Like there's definitely some New Orleans in there. But I I will say this is this is my favorite Jennifer Lopez. Sun kissed, hair all big and inflated from that Amazon humidity, wife beater, khaki pants. We're so used to seeing her so glamorous. I honestly think she's so stunning at her most natural here. And she's like her least glammed up you'll ever see her. And it, it really like it this role works for her. Like when she does have badass moments in this, and there are a few coming up. You know, she does have a few kick-ass moments in this movie. I love it. I wish I could see more from her. They pass a waterfall and it's beautiful. He even says, Sarone even says to uh to Denise, he's like it's beautiful sight, baby bird. <laughs> baby bird. Like, I can't. I can't. I, yeah. And she's emotionally wrecked at this point. She's like, on the comatose scale, she's like Barbara Knight of the Living Dead level of crazy at this point. And to top it off, the boat now hits the bottom of the river and gets stuck. So the only way that they're going to get unstuck Danny says, is they need to get themselves out of there. They need to take the rope and go tied to the tree so that they can all pull on it to get the boat out. So <sighs> Terry, Danny, and Westridge get into the water to go tie their ropes to the trees to pull the bow out. Last time I was in water like this, I was up all night picking leeches off of my scrotum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Reminded me of Stand By Me. Oh my god. Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah. But at the same moment, Sarone's uh, just sitting there watching him with a smirk. And Denise. Oh god damn it. Bless her heart. What the fuck did she really think Girl. she was going to do? She has a knife, but you know this this bumbling, crying mess isn't going to do anything. She thinks she she approaches him with a knife, uh, and he says he says to her, "Don't ever look anybody in the eye. You're gonna kill. Trust me, I know." And she just starts crying, and she has holding this knife real wimpily. And what does this motherfucker do now? This Roger took me by surprise. I did not remember this happening. Oh my god! Well, <laughs> leading and here's my thing. Leading up to this point. The whole thing about Sarone is he's been relatively old and weathered. I mean, like, I'm shocked that these fuckers didn't try to, like, you know, wrangle the gun from him 
20 minutes ago in the movie. Like, I mean, he's just this old, just kind of like beaten and uh, leathery old man. He's all wrinkled. He doesn't really look like he's capable of that much. And then all of a sudden, fucking out of nowhere, as Denise is standing there, a blubbering mess. I mean, she has no business being even close to this man. He knew exactly what he was going to do luring her over. He manages to, like, launch his himself up from the ground. His wrists are tied around a pole, so he jumps up, and he wraps his legs around her frail little neck, and he manages to, like, thigh squeeze her to death in a matter of seconds. Oh, it's quick. I, I had to get a chuckle to that, how fast she dies. And it is the image of Carrie words be- stuck between John Voight's legs is something I will never get out of my head, but he is just like squeezing her. And she's like, I mean, it's kind of ironic, right? She, she is dying by constriction, which is what these anacondas are doing. So it's like, sort of like, I, I felt like it was sort of like trying to draw a parallel between a Cerrone and the anacondas. They're both equally lethal and they can constrict the life out of you because he literally kills her. And there's a scene where like, they're over there tying the, the rope to the trees, and behind them, you see him just casually kick her, by, kick poor Carrie Wur into the river. Uh, he gets the knife, and he's able to like saw himself free. But as the group is is tying the ropes, a, an anaconda comes storming down the river, and they literally have to just book it back to this boat. Terry and Danny make it back to the boat, but Westridge was too far. He was at the opposite tree, so the only where he can go is the rocky formation that the waterfall is flowing over. So he has to get up there and start climbing the rocks. Once Danny and Terry get on that boat, Sarona fucking attacks. And we get a all-out fucking fist fight. He slaps, he punches Jennifer Lopez. Fucking him and uh, Ice Cube are punching each other. He stabs Ice Cube Danny in the leg with a knife. Uh, I mean, it's just a it's just a battle. Yeah, the the fight sequences between these individuals always tend to be pretty well handled. I I like the hand to hand combat sequences. The one thing that gets me though that kind of took me out of it is this has perhaps some of the fakest punching sounds I've heard. They are so fucking bad. I agree. I agree. It's the it's the very generic. <laughs> They're big. That you could. They are big. But I mean, other than that, I mean, the sequence is very well choreographed. I mean, you have elderly actor taking on Jennifer Lopez and ice cube and holding his own. And it's, it's, it's quite, uh, it's quite action packed. I really enjoy this sequence. What I enjoy more is Westridge climbing up that damn waterfall. Oh my God. It's high stakes drama here. Uh, it, I mean, it is suspenseful. People are just terrified. The snake is closing in on him. Um, I do appreciate the fact that one of the reasons that they were both able to get back to the boat is because Westridge did purposely, distract the snake's attention and put himself in danger. And he's like, come over here, you big motherfucker. But then he does get trapped up on the waterfall. And it is a very like uh, nerve wracking sequence where he's like slipping on these rocks. It looks very dangerous. I don't know how the fuck they film this without this man actually dying, but he does get up to the top of the waterfall. And there's this great moment where the silhouette of the anaconda appears behind the water. And then it comes through the water. It's so intimidating. And he eventually has to jump. He, like, he has no other choice. And of course, the thing grabs onto him and, and rolls up, rolls him up, you know, wrapping around him. Uh, this whole sequence is quite well done. I would probably say this is one of the more famous scenes from the film. 
when uh, Westeros jumps off the ledge and as he's falling, the, the anaconda grows down and grabs him and pulls him back up. Uh, and it causes then the tree that the anaconda is hanging on to fall and it falls back down onto the boat, knocking everyone into the water. Terry gets back onto the boat safely, but Danny's struggling because he gets caught not only in seaweed, but he gets caught up in Denise's body. Yeah. Uh, and he can't get back on the boat and the anaconda is able to grab him and wrap itself around him. And you're like, oh, fuck. OK, they're going to kill Danny, too. Uh, and he's struggling. She, Terry's trying to help him. She finally is able to realize that the gun is laying over yonder by her. So she grabs the gun and fucking shoots this anaconda in the face three times. Uh, this whole climax to this moment is fucking great. Everybody's in danger. There's so many threats you know, happening all at once. You got the gun, you got John Voigt with his accent, you got the fucking snake, people are being killed with thighs, people are slipping on waterfalls. It's all building up to this really big climactic moment. And it's not even the finale. There's more to come after this. One little detail that I found disappointing was technically with the whole sequence of of Westridge falling f- with the tree collapsing and everything, um, you get this really brief shot of him looking bloodied and the snake kind of abandoning his body. Um, but that's like all you get. Like you're supposed to conclude, okay, he died. I did feel for such a grand sequence and a character who really did kind of step up in the final moment and assist when everyone else was in danger. I, I really thought there would either be more of a payoff or at least with the way they depicted it, I thought he was going to come back. Like I really thought there was room for this character to return. I kind of had the same thought because you don't really see him dead. You know, you assume he's dead, but you don't ever see it. So I thought there for a moment he was going to pop up in the final frames of the film. But alas, he does not. Uh, there is this like really graphic shot of the the anaconda after it gets shot in the, you know, in the, in the head with like the blood gushing out of it and the big old hole in its head. And it goes, yeah, and goes back under water. Zerone actually fucking attacks Terry with the gun now. He was like, it's no use to me, dead. And he's like attacking her. But somehow Kale has woken up and stabs Sarone in the back with a tranquilizer. And then Danny punches him and he falls back into the river. I was thankful that they at least, if you're going to have a character bedridden for that long of a period of time, he better at least have a good moment where he comes back and does something. So at least they utilize that for the surprise factor. So I'm here for it. He does then proceed to pass out again, though. So it's like, ugh. But there is this, oh my God, this moment where where Sarone starts choking him. And because of like the trach hole, he starts bleeding from the neck. And I'm like, oh my oh. God, that looks so painful. Yes, they put him back in bed. Uh, they dock the boat and they go explore this. Like they're, they, They've drifted towards this like warehouse, this large warehouse on the shore. So they dock the boat and they go explore this warehouse. And they find various things. There's some barrels that uh, they realize is gas. Um, so they may be able to, so they may be able to get these barrels and use fuel to get back to where they need to be. There's a snake skin massive. And I just saw random snake skin. And then out of nowhere, like literally like Danny turns around and Sarone is right there and like bashes him in the face. And here's my issue with this is it's it's quick, but also before this, like he did get hit with a sedative dart and drop into the water. Um, And they did try to explain it away with a shot uh, in which you hear Ice Cube's voice very much dubbed saying the dart came out of his back. Cause I think they feel like nobody was going to notice that it was a dart that he got stabbed with. And so they have this like insert of the dart floating in the water, but he's missing. So it's pretty clear 
that he's going to come back into play in some way, shape, or form. But from what I've gathered, the boat has managed to float away for a bit. And I just don't understand how this man could keep up on foot, making it sedated. I mean, these sedative darts do fucking nothing. Nothing that gets hit with them actually ends up sedating. Yeah, yeah, nothing. Exactly. No, he doesn't. The snakes he shot with it don't. Who knows? So somehow he manages to just show up. And then it's just, it's so quick. It's so abrupt. He just pops out of nowhere, hits him, hits Danny, but then it cuts and we fade back in and Danny and Terry are tied together now in the middle of the floor. Did he get them at the same fucking time? With I, that's mom? what I don't understand. I, I don't understand. It doesn't really, it's very weird. It it's is weird. weird. It is abrupt. Like they're like, they look down they're like, oh, look, it is fuel. And their faces are turned and then they turn around in unison and boom, log to the face. Suddenly they're tied up together. So yeah, he must've been very strategic about how he knocked them out. He must've done like a two for one or something. It must've been. But then what he proceeds to do is fucking disgusting. Yeah, this is gross. He he has killed another monkey. These poor monkeys. I know. He's killing the whole fucking rainforest. Yeah. (laughs) He's drained it of its blood. And he proceeds to take this bucket of monkey blood and pour it on them. So that they are bait, so that the snake is attracted to the smell of the monkey blood. And lo and behold, they're like grossed out. And all of a sudden, Danny's like, holy shit, look, look. And we pan up and we see this huge fucking anaconda coming through the roof right at them. From this point forward, the movie's phenomenal. <laughs> like The rest of this movie is fucking great. Fast-paced. Fast-paced. And yes. we're actually, obviously there's more than one anaconda. These anacondas, who knows how many there are, but now this one is coming, and this is probably the most evil-looking of all of them. We get several close-up of, of this one's face, and its eyes are very, like, squinty, and it looks just pissed. Oh, it's uh, mad. It, it knows. is, man. And they're trying to, like, scoot away, and there's this cool shot of it flying down from the ceiling, grabbing them, wrapping itself around both Jennifer Lopez and Ice Cube, simultaneously and just pulling them into its grasp. Oh, it's such a good shot. The CGI here in the finale, they really managed to make sure at least that the digital effects for the final 10 minutes of the movie are probably the best quality in the film. This whole moment here, beginning to end, is is extremely impressive. And you said it before, but this is really, I think, an example of, at its best, of some of the, the best CGI to come out before the 2000s. You know, we talk about the Jurassic Parks. We talk about a lot of these movies that have pulled off these amazing sequences. And I really think at its best, this film deserves to be kind of held up amongst that high ranking of, of some of the finest digital effects pre-millennium. I mean, what do you think on this? No, I'd say, that's what I said at the beginning of the episode. I, I really was surprised at how well these cgi effects held up we did our um january patreon talking bodies episode so if you're interested in hearing us dive into conversations that aren't strictly film reviews because we do uh, a segment on our patreon called talking bodies where we just discuss different topics and this month's topic was cgi versus practical effects and some of our our preferences and some examples of really good uh and bad of both so if you that sounds interesting another reason to check out the patreon besides tiffany the doll but we discuss cgi and uh practical effects in that episode and if i would have seen this before we did that episode i would have specifically brought this film up because i do think the cgi holds up quite well the snake has terry and danny and sarone drops a fucking net on them and what does he do he shoots this snake with this tranquilizer which hasn't worked the entire fucking movie and guess what it doesn't work now what it does is it causes it the snake to let go of terry and danny and fucking sarone tries to climb up the ladder and he is 
grabbed by the snake. The snake grabs his shoulder, pulls him off the ladder, throws him on the ground right in front of, you know, Terry and Danny. And as he's getting back up, the snake attacks again, bites his shoulder. And then we get this amazing sequence. We get to watch the snake swallow John Voight whole. I mean, we get to see a few things. I mean, this sequence. We see his. Oh, we see his cheekbone pop up. Oh, that jawbone just cracking. And like, you don't even see blood. You just see the skin of it pop out. And you're like, you know, that jaw just completely busted. It makes, again, it makes your asshole clench. Um, but again, this character, horribly unlikable, both because he's a bad person and because the performance is often atrocious. But the end of this movie, end of the day, I fucking hate this person. I hate him so much. I hate when he puts poor, beautiful Jennifer Lopez through and that gentleman ice, uh, ice tea. I'm, I'm a fan of both of them in this movie. By this point, they've both been pretty good people striving for good things, working together, teamworking. And he's just a shitty, awful human being. And seeing him get such a horrible, horribly painful. I mean, you want to talk about long drawn out kill sequences this one goes on. I mean, it comes back. Like, he gets digested here in a moment. We're going to touch on that, too. But the fact that this specific individual receives such a gnarly, painful death is so very satisfying. I can't think of a better candidate for a horrible, horrible demise. Oh, it's definitely satisfying. So Terry and Danny were able to get free. She takes off to to run to get the fuel. She goes upstairs and runs into a basically a, a nest of baby baby anacondas. And as she's like trying to take it in, we see all these little baby anacondas squirming around. The the big anaconda comes up up the stairs and spits the corpse of Sarone out at her, like right in front of her. And we get a very disfigured uh body double killer looking john voight oh it is so elaborate and again with the snake being borderline sentient uh i feel like he regurgitates this corpse just to kind of like give jennifer lopez like an extra like fuck you i'm specifically going to spit this guy up just so i can eat you (laughs) like it, it seems so targeted the regurgitation of sarone but the effect here like when he comes out and his skin's all like moist and rotting and one of his eyes is missing, but the other one looks up at her and for a second it, it gives a death blink before it collapses. It's so gross. It's it's honestly like one of the more disgusting um, corpse effects I've seen in a while. Oh, yeah. It's slimy. It's like, ugh. and you are right. It does look like the killer from Body Double. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? I yeah, told you. I, I know. That's what I said. In my, yeah. Which, which we did review last week. We did. We did. So Jennifer Lopez, Terry takes off running and she's climbing the ladder to this like chimney tower and the snake is right on her tail and she gets to the top of it. And Danny's trying to like prevent the snake from coming after. So he hits it with a pickaxe. That pickaxe would not hold that snake. No, no, this is a, this snake is a thousand. This is huge, but it knocks over some gas cans and she's up at the top of the smokestack trying to get out. It's your typical, like, I mean, we've seen this trope used I many times. I can't get out. Yeah, where someone's climbing a tunnel on the gate, the 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 grate won't come open. That's what we're getting here. She's like, it won't open, and the snake is literally like f- a foot behind her when uh, she's able to undo un- un- the latches just in time, and she pulls herself out of the 
the chimney and she's hanging there and Danny's like, you got to jump. And she's like, no, it's too high. But he's already lit the the gas because gas has leaked and, and went into this smokestack with them. And before she has a chance to even do anything, it fucking explodes. The whole smokestack explodes, causing her to fall into the water below. The snake catches fire and there's this really, I guess it's okay. It's an okay effect of the snake on fire flying out of the chimney. I mean, there's so much going on right now. My biggest gripe is the fact that Jennifer Lopez would have absolutely been crushed by falling debris. Like there's no way this woman would have survived this massive smokestack falling on top of her. But you do see her like coming out of the water. You know, she's, she's, getting to her feet and she's getting to the shallow water and all of a sudden out of the water, the the snake is now on fire. And so now not only is the snake trying to kill her, but it's burning while it's trying to kill her. So like, again, the stakes are so fucking high in this movie. Everything that could possibly go wrong is going wrong. Uh, Luckily ice cube is there to lift Jennifer Lopez from the water onto the pier. And they watch as the snake in dramatic fashion sinks into the water, it's burning corpse, or so we think. Oh, so we think, because as they're sitting there embracing each other, and we have a few seconds of silence where we're like, okay, everything's okay. It fucking pops out of the water. This jump scare got me. I will admit, this got me. It comes up, it just comes out fast. It's like, Rrr! and Danny hits it in the head several times with the axe and kills it. Yes. I mean, he's like, he's like, bye, motherfucker. Yes. A, a grand finale and an iconic killer return i mean we come to expect this from our finest slashers dare i say that the anaconda may fall upon the ranking of one of the 90s greatest killers of all time he even gets a double double return kill he comes back one more time just to intimidate the leads one more time before he is killed for good it's very epic well they uh they go back to the boat they get kale and he's he seems to be doing well besides the you know the neck and everything bleeding as they're sailing away they see the shirashima tribe coming down the river in canoes listen i gotta say one thing you got steve he's now conscious the professor and he does say he acknowledges he's like well what do you know sarone was right which means that even though he's a piece of shit and a fucking asshole he was actually accurate about what he was telling them regarding finding this tribe and i guess like if only they would have just cooperated and nobody would have really argued it could they have maybe made it through this without any deaths like i wonder if he would have just worked with them and everything would have been fine and dandy they would have gotten their tribal visuals for their documentary he would have captured this giant snake on his own regard and everyone would be happy and be fine and dandy not saying that's actually something that's going to happen but i do like the fact that he is aware of that that Sarone was not bullshitting about his instructions, and if they would have followed through with it, he was telling the truth. That's what it sounds like, right? That's what I gathered, but more importantly, I felt like it was a really kind of full circle ending to the film because they are able to then get the this tribe on camera and get the footage that they needed that was the original intent for them even setting out on this trip. So yeah, despite virtually all of their crew dying they still get to they still get to you know get to get footage for this documentary which i thought was okay well there you go at least at least it wasn't all for naught well i do feel that it is completely uh, disregarding the loss of human life that just occurred they seem pretty happy with the moment they're like oh wow better roll camera on that 
too bad half the people on this boat, if not more, were just violently killed by a massive snake. But yeah, I mean, if you're going to have a happy ending for a movie called Anaconda, I guess it's going to be something along these lines. Yeah, I guess so. And they sail off and the credits roll. And that is Anaconda. Yeah, we did it. We got through Anaconda starring the beautiful Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, yeah. Fun film. Fun film has its flaws. But overall, I mean, like I said at the beginning, sit back with a bucket of popcorn. Don't expect too much. And like the last 30 minutes of this film are a hoot. And the film's pace is pretty okay. Again, once action gets kicked into place, the the film goes by real quick. It's brisk. It's action-packed. It's a hoot. Uh, Again, I I definitely have fun with this one. I'm glad I finally checked it out again 24 some years later after seeing it the first time. Have you ever seen, I'm curious, have you ever by chance seen Anaconda's The Hunt for the Blood Orchid, This the first sequel? I have not. I'm going to say it. You know, I don't think everyone's going to love it, but I do find that movie to be pretty damn entertaining. It's not perfect by any means, but it's another really great popcorn film. Um, I would happily sit down and watch it anytime. Uh, but I really do feel like this film, yeah, I mean, it is a flawed piece of cinema. It's flawed. You know, if it was on, I'd probably watch it, but I don't know if I'd seek it out. This, I'm talking about the sequel. Listen, I'm going to make you watch it for a review coming up here. We're going to be watching Anaconda's Hunt for the Blood Orchid. Just you wait. So now you've wished that into fruition. We shall see. We shall see. But yes, that was Anaconda, folks. So let us know your thoughts. Should we review the sequel? Why don't you give us some feedback? Would you like to hear us discuss the sequel? Uh, Roger, do you want to quickly, before we go, let the viewers know what our next episode will be? Absolutely. I mean, we're about to sashay our way into February. And I'm very excited because, you know, we have a brand new month uh, unveiling titles for our Patreon listeners, as we mentioned earlier. And the first one that we're going to sink our ratty little teeth into is uh, is none other than the 2000s remake of the classic Willard. Ooh, Crispin Glover. And Kristen Cloak. She's yes. in a small cameo role. Oh, my God. Yes. That'll be a fun one. That'll be a fun one, guys. Yeah. Willard. And we have a guest this episode as well. We haven't had a guest for it in quite a while. It's been a hot minute since we've actually, I think, had time to manage it with everything going on. But we're back on a roll, and we figured why not let February be our, our first month of revisiting the idea of, of having a guest host. Uh, to go through a title with us. So we're having my friend Kyle Haynes, my friend from Cleveland, another reviewer who really knows the horror genre quite well. And this is a movie that he's a huge fan of. He did pick this title. So I'm I'm excited to see uh, what knowledge he brings to the table because he often comes into this with uh, quite a lot of understanding of the material. So I think it's going to be a really great conversation piece with a lot of uh, meat to chew on dare I say. Lots of meat, rat meat, apparently. Willard, Willard. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm excited for this particular episode. Um, that's Willard is a, is a film that I think the remake doesn't get a lot of the love that it deserves. So I'm excited to be able to spread the, the word about the film and why people should check it out. So yeah, that is our next episode for February. And again, we have some great titles for February. So Stay tuned. Stay tuned. But until then, I dare say, maybe grab a few beers, a bucket of popcorn, and wrap up in your blanket for another viewing of Anaconda. Doesn't that sound tempting, Troy? 
It sounds very tempting. I may do that myself right now. Wonderful. All right, guys. Good night. Good night. Good night.